Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We spoke earlier today to Ben Hurd. He's a, an eco-modernist. He's also co-founder of Bright New World. And today we talked to Ben about small modular reactors, SMRs. So there's a lot of new technology coming through and some new players. And we look at the world going forward with SMRs in it. Uh, we also talk about some of the countries which have stated their zero carbon deadline dates, how they're going to get there and what it's going to cost. You can also find market commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of commodities, companies and topics at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where there's also detailed company reports, training videos, uh, summaries of other interviews that we have done to save you a bit of time. And there's also a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other there. So go along and sign up at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Ben, how are you doing, sir? Matthew, it is great to be back. I'm really, really well today. Fantastic. We're glad you're back. We left it too long, I think, if, if I'm honest. Uh, how, things, how are things there? Tremendous. I mean, I'm in a fortunate position. Uh, Australia's uh, done it pretty well under the sort of uh, COVID-19 situation. We've certainly been through a period where the state of Victoria and the city of Melbourne has been in a hard lockdown and I've had some very fatigued looking friends and colleagues and family in Melbourne for a period of many weeks, uh, but that's been successful. And so fortunately that's lightening up uh, my home in, uh, in Adelaide, however, is a, a delightfully uh, off the beaten path, uh, third tier, maybe even fourth tier city. And uh, hey, every now and then that works in your favor. So uh, we, we're in good shape. Uh, it's springtime here in, in Adelaide. It's been a much cooler year, a little bit of a La Nina year. So we've had some cooler weather, which is really welcome after, after what last year was in Australia. So life is good at my end. Thank you very Fantastic. much. Fantastic. Well, and also, because of what's been going on with COVID, I think there's been a lot more attention on this zero carbon environment that people want, ESG, green circular economies, EV revolution. So uh, how's work? Busy? Work's busy. Yeah, work's busy. We are fielding a lot of inquiries sort of with, with a lot of the different hats that I wear, both in sort of my de my uh, day job consultancy and, and, and my, my night job advocacy is busy. So we're hearing a lot from interested stakeholders in government, interested stakeholders in private sector and interested stakeholders in civil society presently who are wanting to know and understand more about nuclear technologies that are on offer, um, what role they can play in the bigger picture of decarbonisation. I think we're seeing much greater understanding now about deep decarbonisation and the fact that there's a there's a job beyond electricity, even if the electricity jobs not itself not that easy. That there's a job beyond, so we're seeing a deeper appreciation of that, and a, and a changing context around the world in terms of that being being urgent. So, the upshot of that for us is that we're we're dealing with a lot of inquiries and we're seeing some. I think I mentioned the last time we spoke. Um, it's not just about the technology; it's about the context in which the technology operates. And I'm still seeing actually quite rapid evolution in that context. Okay. So, and what, what sort of advice are people looking for? What problems are they trying to solve? I think we're – well, I've got probably two sort of angles where I'm, where I'm taking um, um, inquiries. But one's on a fairly techno-economic um, front uh, where there are a lot of stakeholders who have now reached the point of saying, okay, there's been enough news coming down my wires about nuclear power and particularly advanced nuclear power and small modular reactors. All right, what's it actually all about really? Um, how does it fit in? How real is it? How near term is it? Um, what are the milestones? What should we be looking for? Um, and what would we need to do to be ready to be, to be a user and an adopter of that? Uh, and then we've got another sphere of, of inquiries, which is um, you know, more along the lines of me, my evening job and my advocacy job, which is about what does it take to make change in a civil society perspective? Um, how can you effectively organise around an issue? What's it like to try to move the needle on a, on a national conversation? Um, and the fact that um, Bright New World, the um, environmental NGO, 
that I founded and, and that uh, is, is operated effectively by Dane Eckerman um, is now a few years old and we've been able to um, maintain sustain a position in Australia and begin to get some recognition and have some impact uh, means now we've got some lessons to share. Um, and so we've got all around the world, that's now a more active sector uh, and it's a more collaborative sector. So there's a lot of cross fertilization and a lot of sharing of ideas. And so I feel like these two worlds are, are, are both um, starting to, to bubble up quite strongly. Uh, and so I think that the, the next 10 years are, are gonna be dramatically different to the 10 that have come before. I think it's gonna feel like things start to move a lot faster. I think so, I think so. We've certainly been exposed to a lot more conversations along those nature, along that nature as well. But today, after promising our darling subscribers, followers and members, uh, that we would talk about small modular reactors. We're going to do a little bit of that with you today, uh, amongst other things, amongst other things. Fantastic. But why don't we start with SMRs, okay, small modular reactors. Um, there's been a lot of advancement in the on the technology there, and we're starting to see a few players come to the market, and we're seeing a lot of new applicational uh, applications. Um, so, do you want to just want to talk around some, maybe some of the technology and um, that uh, people are using, and where they're using it, and the context which they're using it? Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I think that we're seeing um, what we're seeing is the achievement of, of many milestones by many players in many places, um, remarkably converging right at the end of 2020. Um, so it feels fast and really big um, um, groundbreaking changes often do when they happen, even if there's 10 or 15 years of hard work behind all of it. And so, you know, when we last spoke, there was already quite a lot to talk about in, in the space, even just in the in intervening time, so many new milestones have, have been hit that are really meaningful that I think we can now confidently call, and I've called it, that we've, we've got a new clean energy technology sector now. You know, this isn't just about uh, there's a vendor or, or a designer or someone has an exciting idea. There's a sector. And, you know, probably not only 12 or 18 months ago, we might have talked about one or two vendors that we might think would have um, first power from a reactor, a small modular reactor by 2030. We're now plausibly looking at that being six um, with a whole, whole variety of designs there in size, in the fuel cycle and in the technology. There's a mix there of designs that are very much reduced down versions of what's extremely well known. Um, and then designs that are um, really quite different fuel cycles with a different spread of advantages. And also some that are moving right to the end game that we discussed briefly last time, which is the, the closed fuel loop and the recycling of the used nuclear fuel. And the fact that we've had milestones and really meaningful commercial milestones across those spread of reactors in just a few months um, has changed the nature of the conversation. So, you know, I consider that there are at least um, eight, you know, really important players now. And that's just sort of in the first handful that you'd scoop up uh, and, there, and there will be more. So that makes it a, a really exciting, interesting time. And you can appreciate that people are now starting, to, now starting to pay more attention to that. So who are, the, who are these new players? Where are they from? Does the geopolitics of the large reactor uh, builders come into play here? Or do you think this is going to be um, more equitable as in, you know, this will be about the economics rather than the politics? Yes, there's elements of both. The... Um, Really interesting part about the small modular reactor form, or one of the interesting parts about it, is that it, a lot of it has now recentered on North America as uh, as an innovator, and so the United States and Canada um, together are producing a number of the leading players in small modular reactor nuclear technologies. So if we look at a company like uh, New Scale Power in uh, in Oregon, I think they're in Oregon, but they're a United a United States company and looking to do their first build in, in Idaho. And that's a, a light water reactor technology with 
innovative um, cooling systems that uh, allow it to have full passive cooling. Uh, General Electric uh, Hitachi, um, again, doing excellent things actually now with two reactor designs, one of which has been selected by Ontario Power Generation, a very sh uh, shrunken down version of their uh, boiling water reactor um, to be advanced by Ontario Power Generation and teaming up with a company called TerraPower. Uh, this was the one founded by uh, Bill Gates um, to create a design based on their fast reactor core and combining molten salt storage. Again, United States, Canada. Um, Canada, terrestrial energy, uh, integral molten salt reactor. Um, Ultra Safe Nuclear Corporation, also being advanced by Ontario Power Generation in Canada. Um, X Energy, not actually sure where they're headquartered, but being advanced, having won awards from the United States Department of Energy and the, um, and again, Ontario Power Generation. So you've now actually got some serious center of gravity for a sector again in the United States. That's also partly the geopolitical. So there is a sense and a prevailing opinion that America might have lost the race on the large reactor um, challenge in terms of being a vendor of large reactors into the global market. That uh, Rose Adam is doing it, such a successful job of that. Um, Kepco is able to do that. Um, the Chinese um, will be able to do that, although they've, they've got a lot of domestic build to achieve. So you know they're going to need to they're going to suck up a lot of their own um, need there. Uh, but the small reactors and advanced reactor designs were away were away from um, the United States to get back uh, into a competitive footing of selling in, uh, nuclear energy into into various markets. You've then also got Rolls Royce looking to do a very big SMR build program um, in the United Kingdom, um, pithily named UK SMR. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing um, some of those older nuclear um, powers look to reinvent in small modular nuclear reactors. Now, it isn't exclusively the, the, uh, the English-speaking world. Um, the, the Russians have their floating nuclear power plant um, uh, on, on a barge, which is you know, a tremendous idea for a lot of reasons. But it is interesting to, to note that um, having struggled with that large nuclear build in the last 10 years, it now looks like being a, a thriving sector uh, coming out of North America. It's, it's, it, it is interesting that America has almost regenerated itself. You know, you, you, look, you look at the whole Westinghouse, you know, disintegration, as it were, and, you know, losing their, their, their seat at the table and not really having a voice. And then you look at the Chinese and the Russians coming into play and stepping into countries you know, do, doing this sort of PPP type approach where they, you know, they allow countries to pay for these things over a long period of time and establish relationships, which must be for the Americans, uh, you know, hard hard to swallow after all those years of you know lead, leading the way. Um, but nevertheless, they've they've recognised it, and if we've seen a lot of this in the dialogue and the rhetoric recently over the you know Section Two Three Two and the Nuclear Fuel Working Group and. Um, even with the RSA, recent Russian expansion agreement, Americans have recognized that they need to step back up to the plate. And they're using technology as a way to do that. And the US government are deploying or allocating a lot of capital to this, these new technologies. Um, do you think that obviously that looks like set to continue? Um, it was, was interesting. And it's when, it'd be interesting to see which of these technologies wins the day, or do you feel that there's room at the table for all of the above? I think there's room at the table for, for several, and it's definitely better that way for, for a good long time to come. Um, the uh, United States in particular is taking it very seriously. There is a couple of really big signals in that. The um, Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program um, has committed to building and demonstrating two advanced reactors by 2027, and that's going to be the X-Energy Pebble Bed Reactor um, in the United States and um, the natrium reactor, which is the General Electric Hitachi TerraPower um, combination. Um, this is an excellent use of, of um, state money to fund innovation. You know, there's a correct space for state money to, to, to be directed. And it's, it's not necessarily to, to, to subsidize relatively mature technologies uh, to simply be then manufactured at greater scale and come down the cost curve. That, that's probably going to happen anyway. And there's a comes a point where that 
that really needs to stop and that's not a great use of public money. But the gap in the next great technology is because there's often that first mover um, challenge for new technologies. And I think we're seeing in the, in the advanced nuclear space, um, there is quite a crowd of people that are keen to go second. Um, you know, there are a lot of little MOUs being um, um, signed in, in places like um, Poland, Romania, uh, and others with people who are really very interested um, to be second when, when there's a proven um, product to buy. And the other big signal that America gave recently, which I'm personally hugely heartened by because it was a, uh, it was a big advocacy point for Bright New World, is that they've uh, changed their policy on development bank funding. So the United States Development Bank Corporation in the last few months um, revised its policy to permit development funding for advanced nuclear reactor developments. Now, it's perhaps not understood that to date, no development bank worldwide, World Bank, IMF, um, Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, or the US Development Corporation Bank, none of them would put low-cost finance toward the development of nuclear power in developing nations. Um, that only makes them even more expensive compared to other competitors. And so they will more likely turn toward coal, gas, and other polluting technologies. So this is a hugely heartening change. And, and coming out of that came a, um, uh, an MOU to new scale uh, power to say that, you know, that, that bank uh, will work with uh, that vendor into the South African interest in acquiring a new 2,500 megawatts of capacity in its market. So I think we're looking at a genuine long-term commitment that combines the potential to have a really strong sales market and make good money um, in a lot of countries doing something that's incredibly important and ethical, which is providing clean, long-lasting, stable and reliable energy, which does also meet that need for the United States of feeling like they are back at a seat of influence in fast growing areas around the world. Um, I personally really welcome that. I think that is uh, heartening for a whole range of reasons. Fantastic. I, I do want to come back to um, the US government or the Department of Energy specifically um, desire to fund some of the new technologies, but you know, also some of the older reactors, you've got a lot of utilities crying out for that, but I'll, we'll come back to that. But let's talk about some of the, these different technologies and put them in the context of the, the usage, for instance, because some of these yeah. new technologies can be better suited for you know d different needs and different countries have different sets of um, regulations, uh, constraints, political or otherwise, which are going to restrict uh, them uh, or direct them towards one solution or another. So, so what, are, what are you seeing out there in terms of the way that people are engaging with these different technologies? Yeah, so there seems to be, um, yeah, what I find really interesting, Matthew, is that um, I've, I've heard um, many presentations and webinars now from uh, many different experts of different vendors talking about small modular reactors. And they all ask themselves the same questions um, uh, but they all land in different solutions about, therefore, this is the sort of re reactor we, we've chosen to design. And it really depends um, which company they, they were going into that question um, and which company they want to be going forward in terms of what they're going to choose to do. So you've got everything from, uh, you might take at one uh, end, uh, Rolls-Royce and General Electric Hitachi, all the way down to, to Oclo. You know, everything from big established companies that have already got all of this to look after to young, completely new innovators. And so they approach the question differently. So we'll start up, up this end, I suppose. If you take um, the BWRX 300, it is a shrunken down version of a boiling water reactor. A boiling water reactor is a, a mature technology worldwide. There's 50 or 60 of them around the world in various countries. Um, they've been built with um, very great success in Japan uh, with really good um, time um, and cost outcomes. Been a great successful technology for General Electric Hitachi. So we're talking about the same basic fuel cycle, light water reactor, um, water, mod uh, water moderator and coolant. That's going to be an electricity power generating device. The heat that comes from, from that isn't uh, that high. So 300, 350 degrees Celsius heat from, from those sorts of designs. Um, there's certainly um, 
non-electrical uses for that heat, but it's not what you'd call a high temperature reactor. So they are going for that power market, right? They want to make power and they want to make it cheaply so that they're looking to have high certainty, low cost electricity production um, that people really feel that they can bank on. Um, their design is based on the economic simplified boiling water reactor. That's a bit of a bruising commercial story. Um, General Electric Hitachi uh, licensed the economic simplified boiling water reactor, which is a very expensive process, and never sold one. So design's never been built, but it cost about a half a billion dollars to get it licensed. So what they are able to do is a reinvestment process because so much of it is already licensed. So they can go, up, go through a process of a series of topical reports only establishing what is different and changed on the previous. So their journey through licensing for this SMR is likely to be quite swift and quite certain. And the certainty underpinning the technology is very, very high because it's out there proved and established. Um, is this a good approach? Yes, it's proving that it is. So Ontario Power Generation has chosen that as one of three after a very long due diligence process assessing about 25 designs. This is one that Ontario Power Generation is choosing to advance. And you can see why. It's taking that sim uh, simplest path of miniaturization, which does yield a lot of benefits, high certainty, low cost electricity. Um, if you were to look at uh, the Rolls-Royce SMR I'm expecting to do, uh, it has a very similar principle um, behind it. And that has a very interesting uh, little story about a canopy, which we can, which we can come back to. Um, moving up the, the fuel cycle, um, then another company called Terrestrial Energy were prepared to have a cleaner sheet of paper and be more innovative. They've gone with a molten salt reactor design. The molten salt reactor is, a, is an un... Uh, it's not an unproven, but it's an uncommercialized fuel cycle. So it's not a commercial power producer in the world today. But it was right there at the beginning of nuclear science and technology. A molten salt reactor is able to operate at much higher temperatures. So now we can talk about 600, 650 degrees Celsius maybe. That's got some real advantages. You're going to have higher thermal efficiency for um, potentially better and lower cost electricity production. But that sort of temperature really lets you drive a lot of industrial heat. So there's a lot of pure need out there for heat and high-grade, reliable, dependable heat for chemical manufacturing, for hydrogen production, for ammonia uh, and fertilization production, for beneficiation of minerals, for calcination and hardening. A whole suite of crucial processes day in, day out aren't running on electricity, they're running on heat. And so they really quite openly market this as a heat plant. Um, and uh, full disclosure, I've been an environmental advisor for terrestrial energy for, for five or six years now. So I'm quite familiar with their product offering. Um, and the molten salt reactor has a, a range of um, really evident safety advantages where we go from what you might've termed passive to truly inherent safety. The simple, the, uh, many of the physics aspects of the liquid fuel um, make um, overpower events, runaway events, simply not possible. You would need to pump energy in to make something go wrong. Um, and that's really helpful from a safety case point of view. And once proven, there are other characteristics of that fuel that mean it might actually come down that cost curve really quite fast. So being a liquid fuel and it operates at atmospheric pressure, less structural steel, uh, easier to swap the can out, um, the fuel is probably easier to manufacture. So in the longer term, I think its cost proposition could be really, really excellent. And then moving a little further on, there are some fuel recycling reactors as well that are, that are starting to come on board. They're looking at recycling the used nuclear fuel uh, and also looking to um, add in um, embedded molten salt storage. So actually add the storage at the nuclear power plant, run it full time all the time, and respond to the market needs, whatever they are. And as remarkable as it sounds, all of that's happening now. And all of that currently, plausibly, all of those designs and X Energy's Trizio design, which is another one again, will be making power before 2030. And from there, the growth could be very quick indeed. And that will be good news for a lot of, for a lot of readings. It's in, I, I'm interested that you said at the beginning 
of that, that depending on where people are starting from, it doesn't matter if they ask the same questions, they are destined to end up at a different point. Uh, you know, it's, it's a point well made and well understood, and it's not obviously unique to uh, this conversation, but all conversations is worth people understanding that when they're when thinking about investing. I'm, I'm fascinated by the kind of first principles approach of uh, terrestrial energy, though, um, because they, they seem to be addressing some of the concerns in the marketplace, as well as some of the you know industrial chemical uses, etc., which, which is great. So they, they're having to hit a number of points. But the question I want to ask is about which of these technologies in SMR is most likely to allow the general public to get comfortable with this kind of energy provision within their community. Because, you know, we, we talked about that in the past. You know, some of these, yeah. if they could be proved safe and people feel comfortable, they, they could be the epicenter of, of a town or conurbation uh, and, and, and uh, providing power that way. But people need to feel safe first. There's no getting over that. No, they absolutely do, and and it's so interesting to watch your body your body language there that a hand goes to your heart. You know, it's a it's a gut thing. It's not a head thing, right? It, it's 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 a gut thing. So interestingly, I think across the spectrum, something that I see all of these vendors doing right is they're making them look good, right? They look nice. The uh, conceptual designs are great. And they are beautiful and very, very appealing. And I mean, particularly the UK SMR, I just think is a, is a beautiful looking conceptual design. Um, and that is important because it, it says that you're, you're making something to deliberately attract people and to say, we want you to come. We want you to come and see and look and participate. And so it's great to see that being put up front. The industry has missed that. But to get to, to the heart of your question, those designs slightly further along the innovation scale will do best at that ultimate uh, answer. So I'll give you probably the ultimate example here, I think, is, is Oclo. Now, Oclo is an innovative company and they are looking to make, in the first instance, a very small device, 1.5 megawatt nuclear reactor. And it is passive in so many ways. So it has a a very large ratio of fuel to power output. And what that means is that the, the fuel itself um, at all times runs very gently, I guess would be the word for it. So each bit of fuel is not being pushed too hard in order to produce the output required. Um, so there's, a, there's, a, there's an enormous thermal mass there to accommodate any um, residual heat. And it, there simply can't be any problem. There's just so much room for, for the heat to go everywhere. It's using um, a molten salt uh, coolant, potassium coolant, I think, with entirely passive heat tubes. So there's not even any um, pumps to remove heat from the core, even in full operations. Not, I'm not just talking about emergency or unscheduled shutdowns. In normal operations, the heat removal is entirely passive. It's using supercritical carbon dioxide as the um, ultimate uh, coolant to the turbine which is uh, such a power dense way of moving energy that the turbine for that 1.5 megawatt is about the size of a, of a bread and butter plate. And it's designed to be somewhere that you can walk in and visit. So all of that operations will be below grade. Um, you can come in and walk in and have a look around. And it's designed to be because it doesn't require, it doesn't require security. It doesn't, doesn't require a security fence. Um, because there's nothing you can do to that design to, to push it off in any kind of direction that's going to cause any problem for anyone. Again, as I say, other than adding a whole lot of energy, i.e. blowing something up. But you can do that to anything, right? So that's for me, that's exactly the sort of thing you're describing. People, people would be fascinated by that. And the entire, the entire design is, is laid out to say, welcome, come and see and learn. And this 1.5 megawatt is very much going to be. I was talking to, to Jake DeWitt, the um, uh, I remember he's the, the CEO or the president. Forgive me, Carolyn, if I've got you guys mixed up. Um, but you know, we agreed it's a bit like a display home. Their first reactor is intended to be for utilities and executives and people to come and walk, look, see what you're what you're going to buy. Uh, and that is something that I that I think could literally just become 
uh, embedded and people could be really quite proud that that's what's powering the town, their community, um, their mine. Um, and that can then be upscaled easily to 10 or 20 or 30 megawatts. And it only needs to be refueled every 20 to 40 years. So there's no truck movements, there's no fuel movements, there's no exhaust. It's just a really uh, gentle, beautiful power plant. And so, you know, that, that ultimate thing you've described, the technology definitely helps, definitely helps. Um, everything that I've already talked about beforehand, they're getting a hell of a lot right to move in, the, you know, in that direction um, because they, they, they know. This sector has learned. It's taken a while, but they have learned. Okay, so let's, let's talk about money. Money in the context of technology and time. And what I mean by that is in the States, we're looking and we've heard a lot from utility companies asking the government for subsidies, for help, for bailouts to um, update and extend the life of their current reactors. Some of these things are, you know, 50, 60 years old. These, These are old, old reactors and they can sometimes extend these by another 20 years or so, but it costs billions. You, you just mentioned earlier someone spending half a billion bucks just on the licensing component of this. This To recoup that money takes a long time. So with SMRs, um, you know, small, the clues in the word, it's presumably going to cost a lot less to get these, some of these small uh, modular reactors up and running and built and deployed. But... Is that the future or do we still also need these large reactors, current and new, to be built um, in the way that we kind of run society? I guess maybe yeah, it's going to be partly around the geography and the size and needs of the com- country. But um, how do you see things? We, we need all three. So I'm picking up three things there. Um, large new build, life extension old build and SMRs. Uh, so we need all three. So I mean, let, let's look at the life extension on 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 the old plants. So I, th- I think the oldest nuclear plant in the United States now that's operating recently turned fifty, and that's that's pretty amazing, really. You know, so something built fifty years ago is still is still doing its job today and doing doing it really quite well. So when we think about the value of life extension, we've got to line that up against the uh, against the uh, cost of new build um, and the cost of cost of alternatives. Um, when that's the question you're asking, it's quite good. Um, the value on life extension of nuclear is proving really good, including because time and again, it has proven that uh, life extension and the remediation refurbishment that goes with it for 18 months generally leads to an uprating in the capacity of the nuclear power stations. So uh, with experience, got, we've got to remember nuclear is a young technology. We've been doing this now for not much longer than 50 years. And in that time, the industry has learned how to do it very, very much better. And the United States has been prematurely closing nuclear power stations. It's lost some thousands of megawatts of capacity. And yet last year, the sector made more power than it's ever made before. So they're getting better and better and better at running the plants. And the refurbishment tends to lead to an uprate. It tends to get, as you say, potentially another 20 years of clean power out of an existing asset. That's good value in a lot of reasons. And from a decarbonisation perspective, it's essential. Large nuclear build, different question and much more market dependent. Um, You've really got to be able to prove that against alternative um, options and pathways. And we discussed, I think, briefly last time that um, the hiatus of build in in the United States and Western Europe has proven all near fatal. Uh, for that, um, you know, very much so in, in the USA. If you look at the uh, the EPR in um, UK, France, Finland, and also China, I think that one's going to squeak through because I think <laughs> they, they, they've got enough built around the world now, and particularly if um, now it's not Hinkley Point C, but the uh, the subsequent build in the UK, the name just escapes me at the moment, does go ahead. I think we'll see actually pretty good. Um, time and cost on on that build there, and in some um, you know, still quite a few nations in, in, around the world, uh, fast growing uh, middle income nations where the large new nuclear power build 
and several of them stamped out is probably still the best way to go. It's probably still the best way to go. Um, Poland is an interesting one in that spot. You know, it's it's um, not what you call a, a developing nation, but it's still centrally planned enough and it's got such a large coal sector to replace that the idea of going large uh, nuclear build in that dense grid of, uh, of Europe, that can still work really, really, really well for Poland. But you look at um, Turkey, Egypt, um, Jordan, uh, potentially Indonesia, there's still a lot of reasons why that much capacity in big footprints, there's going to be markets in that for a time to come. Uh, SMR though, that's definitely got its place. And the funny thing about SMR is I feel like um, it goes in at both ends. It opens up some of the truly developing nations to nuclear power much earlier. So rather than it being, you, you need to be a middle income nation to get on, on this path, no, we can bring you a product that's far more fit for purpose so much sooner in terms of the amount of capital that needs to be parted with at any given increment and the quality of the underlying grid infrastructure that's in place and the amount of demand that's in place at the time. So you can have countries like South Africa where um, we've no idea what the ultimate electricity demand is in South Africa. We just know that it's so much larger than it, than it is now. Um, but counterbalancing that is, is many of those people, unfortunately, can't necessarily afford to pay for it yet. So you've got to build that capacity out at the right pace um, so that you've got market for it and that can develop and, and get a good um, development cycle going there. And I think SMR can work really, really effectively there to really match that better. And then you've got countries like mine, um, really liberalised electricity markets. Um, we've really become a bit allergic to, to large projects and long-term political commitments, but we're reasonably high tech. Um, and the SMRs are about the same size as our existing coal and gas infrastructure. And the United States would be in a, in a similar position there now as well, I think, to be honest. I think that there are, uh, whilst that's broken up into a few markets, there are fewer markets where large nuclear is going to make any sense and more markets where smaller nuclear is going to make sense. So this is about getting, um, you know, disaggregating the simple fact of nuclear fission into um, different product sectors to, to suit different markets. And for the goals of decarbonisation, all three are very, very important. So decarbonisation is the objective. We're just talking about the packaging of how you deliver that. Yeah. Right? So, you know. It, yeah, be absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. Okay. Well, I think we better move on to some of the other topics we want to talk about. So thank you very much for that. I've got a much better understanding of the, the, the lay of the land as where and where SMRs fit in and the, and the different types of SMRs fit in. I appreciate that. Um, some of the things that have happened since we last spoke, you know, a few countries have made announcements about their uh, zero carbon targets. So China, Japan, Korea, they've all announced the, the timeline and what they're working to but between now and then, a lot of work needs to happen. Um, are they going to be able to do it? Or is this, again, just more rhetoric in the nuclear space? Oh, I think there's a little bit of both there. I mean, it's not necessarily just rhetoric in the nuclear space. But, you know, climate politics and targets has been um, a, you know, pretty ephemeral for, <laughs> for, for a while now. You know, they come and they go. There seems to be a different sentiment attached to it now, I'm detecting. The, the sequence and the seriousness in which they're coming is, I think, marked by uh, a few tipping points that, that might be happening. I think there's some tipping points in, in um, cost of renewables technologies has hastened that. So there's been a lot of success in delivering uh, a lot of renewable technologies around the world now that's actually saying, well, actually, maybe not all of our forecast needs or you know, maybe a much smaller proportion of it necessarily must come from fossil fuels. So that's been, that's been really, really important. Um, I just think that there is now a, a feeling that we've spent a few decades talking about it, making promises and watching the problem get slowly worse. 
and now get quite noticeably more swiftly worse. Um, and when you also look at the, the uh, advances in the nuclear technologies that we've been talking about, I think those nations are seeing plausible technology pathways to that outcome, actually. Not easy, not easy, but plausible. So if we look in, at the history of energy transitions that we've seen, at least for electrical grids, um, two to three decades is enough. Um, it, it, with a committed uh, nuclear build program, it does the job. Uh, did the job in France, did the job in Sweden. Uh, Ontario finished the job recently and, and eliminated coal. And the United Kingdom, using particularly um, a very strong uh, offshore renewable energy sector combined with uh, a nuclear sector, is looking pretty good on, on that time frame as well. So I don't think it's, it's just um, puff and bluster this time around. I think, I think there's something real. I, uh, sorry, uh, no, so I, I, I just wanted to, to come back to your, your mention of renewables. It, it feels to me like there's been a slight change in mood or perception of, of renewables because there's been a lot of conversation. Like, you know, these are going to be interested parties pushing their own agenda, of, of course. But, you know, people playing down the importance of wind as a solution because of the amount of energy, materials, money, etc., needed to be able to build those windmills um those wind windmills that's quite nice quite childlike uh wind turbines so um uh we maybe we should just call them windmills um but the the no oh, why not you know i i think so i think I, i'm just wondering why people are you know trying to have a go at other forms of clean energy rather than saying look we, we need all of the above it's better than the alternative there is this big, you know, anti-fossil fuel movement, of course. But now that now the clean team are having a go at each other, um, why? Uh, yeah, good question on the why, and I'm not sure. I, I think that um, many people who get involved in this space seem incredibly keen to jump to the end game, um, and and we we don't know what the end game is going to be, and that all of the technologies keep evolving and developing. Now, if you dial the clock back 10 or 20 years, wind and solar looked very different. And we get better at all of them. You know, we get we get better at everything. And, you know, along the lines of, of, of what you're saying, I, um, I'm surprised by the very selective level of optimism or pessimism that gets applied against technology, you know, where I tend to think, well, if, you, if you're a techno-optimist, that, that sort of needs to be evenly applied uh, for, for all of the technologies that, that we're looking at. So if you look at what the wind sector has achieved, it's pretty remarkable in terms of um, uh, making better, more efficient, more effective devices. If we look at what they're, they're doing now in condition monitoring and, and optimization, it keeps getting better. If you look at what the UK has achieved in creating a supply chain that can you know, make a really large offshore uh, wind sector. Um, this is pretty amazing. So I'm not quite sure what the motivation is. I mean, I think there, there is some genuine motivation and I'm prepared to, to, to spring to this position. If I had my own way, if Ben ruled the world for the day, I think small modular nuclear reactors are, you know, they're my preferred technology from a sustainability perspective. The footprint for, is smaller. Um, they've got a longer lifespan. But as I said last time, we're not there yet. And we, we've got some bigger problems to, to deal with first. So I think that there can be some fairly, fairly simplistic rhetoric um, that slips into that. Um, my fallback tends to be that the evidence um, speaks the loudest. And when it comes to renewables, it, it, it's told us two things. They can grow really, really quickly from a small base now because the costs have come down quite far. Um, once they've hit a certain amount of growth and penetration, it then starts to get quite a bit harder quite quickly. Um, both of those things are true at the same time. It doesn't make it uh, either uh, brilliant or awful. It, it just is. Um, can they contribute and make, a, make a, a, a great contribution? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we should also look at what's happening with uh, uh, geothermal developments in Kenya and others. They're all good contributors. Um, I'm ex I find it exciting and interesting to, to know that... Uh, you know, in the next couple of decades, we're going to be able to watch and witness so much of, of where this direction goes. 
Um, but for now, uh, there's a huge amount of energy need out there in the world. And uh, all of these developments in technology are very exciting. Okay, let's bring it back to basics. We've got all of this nuclear energy ahead of us. Price of uranium means we're not going to get it out of the ground. Discuss. <laughs> um, yeah, uranium. What a what a um, what a tricky little mineral. You get so much out of so little, uh, and so many of the improvements in nuclear power means you get even more out of it. And so you've got a situation there where it's wonderful for fuel security and countries that choose to adopt a large nuclear sector can do wisely um, stockpile and create reserves for the purposes of fuel security. And so if there's a change in that sort of a market, um, then people can, can keep that price low for a long time while, they, while that gets worked through. However, I think that there's a potential for that to change now. Now, I've been to enough to enough market conferences and I've heard enough conversations and, and you might have heard them as well um, about people making the same core points that I've just, that I've just made. Um, the underlying need and the fundamentals for it are still there and they're going to come back. There are reserves that are, going to need, that are going to need to be worked through. It's going to stay low for a while. But hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, fair enough. Is that, is that time coming soon? Yeah, I think it is actually. Um, the other neat thing about uranium is that you can double, triple, quadruple the price of the mineral. Doesn't really change the price of the electricity at the other end. So there's really no sensitivity to what the consumer is paying to the price of the uranium. Um, most of that price to the consumer is the capital cost, the cost of finance on, on that capital and the fixed operational and maintenance cost. The variable operation maintenance costs for nuclear, very low. Fuel costs for nuclear, very, very low. Um, and that fuel itself is a generally precision value-added product that's gone through several stages from, from the mined uranium. So by the time you get back to the uranium, whether it's $20 a pound or $120 a pound, doesn't actually matter on the price of the electricity. That's not true for gas. That's not true for gas at all. So if you double, triple, quadruple the price of gas, um, the price of the electricity at the other end changes quite a bit. So if we start to see countries like Japan in particular that are making noises like they want to hit that target, that does mean that that quite large nuclear sector will need to restart more quickly, that China's will need to grow as quickly as, as things have uh, suggested previously, that Korea would probably need to do more build and maintain, and that more of these nuclear markets um, will grow around the world both in the large and in the small. Um, does that mean that there'll finally be some more pull on that uranium price? Yeah, actually, I, th I think we're probably pretty close to that. I've never said anything like that before, by the way. So for heaven's sake, you know, I don't know what the standard disclaimer is on that kind of uh, statement, Matthew, but let's just, you know, we'll stamp that one on the bottom. But I, I, I just think that that's, that's probably likely uh, in, the, in the near future. It'll be, it, will be, it will be interesting to watch, but I don't think that's too far away. There's some holdouts. The European Union um, is an institution that still seems really keen to put barriers in the way of nuclear, but that seems to be coming increasingly isolated. So I think the trajectory now is pretty strong. So I think people are trying to work out whether they should be investing in uranium juniors now or could they leave it a couple of years? Um, what, what's your take on what? What, what is oh, the thing? My crystal ball. Oh, crystal ball's a bit fuzzy on that one. Is it? Well, you know, it's, I, uh, what do you think? If oh. you look, if you look at milestones, um, okay. So if you, yeah, why not? Let's play that game. Um, say you wanted to be a little more, a little more cautious, um, and you were looking at milestones. Well, I think you've got an interesting um, five to six, seven years in front of you potentially to see that first power coming from those SMRs and see those order books start filling up. Um, so, you know, I think that there's there's there's, there's room there, uh, time there, you know, before you know a really strong pull pull might come. Um, and you know, that's 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 probably a you know a reasonably com reasonably common sense uh, statement and, and a, an approach to that. Um, beyond that. Um, the, you know, I don't know though. Then you look at, um, Poland, Romania, uh, Belarus, you know, the, 
these are new large nuclear programs that, that are that are starting. So yeah, if you were more inclined to go a little bit bit earlier, maybe a little bit sooner. So I'm not, I don't think it's I don't think it's a tomorrow thing. It is a fundamentals thing, and I think that the fundamentals um, is is clear. Fantastic! You're back on the fence with me. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Brilliant. exactly where I hope to land. <laughs> yeah, back over here with me. Um, so let's let's talk about eco modernism, okay? Because when we first talked, that was a phrase I really really liked uh, about you. You know, it, it, essentially, smarter energy solutions is what we should be all thinking about and aiming for. Do you think that that? works better with and I, I want to talk about you, you, you know you're, you're, an, you're an Aussie so you know indigenous uh, Aussie populations um, do you think there's now more common ground as a result of just being a little bit smarter about the way you go about these things um, because you know it's not you know when I'm looking at places like Canada South South America it's a big it's a big part of this this whole ESG component is so important for companies and countries. Uh, to get right, are they starting to get it more right than they did? Uh, they certainly are. Many companies, I think, have actually been getting have been getting some of that more right than the environmental movement I used to subscribe to earlier for longer and having it uncredited. Um, I think what I've discovered as I've gone from being, you know, a teenage. Um, enthusiast, activist and subscriber and, and donator to a, uh, a student uh, and a worker and then more moving into becoming more towards a scholar, a researcher, a thinker around the issues. The more I'm realising that um, what I might once have taken for granted as a natural fit between what I thought was environmentalism and what I think are the views and perspectives and needs and concerns of First Nations people around the world aren't necessarily the same. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're, they're really not. Um, and some of the um, companies, or some, some private organisations in Australia particularly, you've got to single out the, the mining sector here. Um, it's, an ex it's been an example of some of the worst and also some of the absolute best on that. Um, you know, in the, some a lot of what is uh, called for in, a, in Australia is um, a call for self determination for Abor Aboriginal people and the ability to return to country. Um, that does require some measure of economic development. That doesn't mean that that um, Indigenous Australians, First Nations people, are wanting to um, retreat from uh, modern Australia and not participate. Quite the contrary, but. It needs to be under a, under a framework of self determination, and you know, what I've discovered recently, I, I have a friend, um, a guy called John Simons, and he's an academic at the University of New South Wales, and um, he wrote a book called Eco Modernism: um, Technology, Politics, and the Climate Crisis. And I've known John for for a few years, and having described myself as, eco, as an eco modernist, I thought well, I should probably read the book, and. Uh, John's sort of the ideal author because he describes himself as, as not necessarily an, e an eco-modernist whilst being sympathetic uh, to it. And so um, he sort of was able to reflect back to me you know, a little bit more of what um, this movement is about and what it um, uh, means and subscribes to. And one gap he was, he was pointing, which is one that's been nagging me for a long time, is well, how well does eco-modernism you know, address the needs and concerns of, of First Nations uh, people? Uh, you know, the word there, you know, the, 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 uh, a lot of the classic eco-modernist uh, ethic is that um, an absolute love of modernity and the modern world um, plus a love of nature, but they exist in, a, in relatively separate relationships. So um, to be able to see nature, um, commune with it, spend time with it and, and enjoy it, but to live my life and get most of my needs in a fairly high-tech, dense sort of uh, environment. And there are real merits to that perspective. So spare land for nature. Uh, but it leads to a term um, which is often used, which is wilderness. And one of the good questions John asked me on Twitter, in, uh, and if you didn't know we were friends, you'd think we were having a bit of a fight um, if you went and read this conversation, uh, was something to the effect of, well, when 
you're saying wilderness. Other people mean they're you're talking about other people's homelands. And how well does eco modernism actually address that? Um, how well does this idea of leaving it alone uh, work for people where their approach to living on, on country isn't to leave it alone, it is to participate with it, it's to be an active part of it, a steward and indeed a land manager of it. I went, okay, that is a good question. I don't know enough about that. Now, you might remember last year, you probably saw on the TV, I expect that we had some pretty bad bushfires in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. But that, well, yeah. and the beginning and of this year as well. That's, that's right. So 2019 was the hottest and driest year on record in Australia. And uh, I mentioned it's a, it's a La Nina year this year and I'm enjoying it because it's a lot cooler. It was really difficult and oppressive um, conditions in, a, in, a, in Australia last year. And it precipitated uh, an ex an enormous fire um, season, uh, particularly in New South Wales, um, just an extraordinary uh, area was burned. Um, and a bit like the conversation about around SMR nuclear is starting to bubble along and more people are getting wind and it starts to feed itself, a conversation has started in Australia about Indigenous land management practices and particularly the use of fire as an active tool. Um, of managing that hazard, fighting fire with fire, quite literally. And so I picked up a book, which I've, I've got here actually, uh, called uh, Fire Country um, by a man called, called Victor Stephenson. And uh, Victor um, learned from two Aboriginal elders, guys called Poppy and, and Tommy G, a lot about um, the use of fire on country to manage land. So I read Victor's book and loved it. And I saw some surprising parallels with eco-modernism, but there's still gaps. We haven't got them together yet, but I saw some surprising parallels. And what surprised me about Fire Country that I think it shares with eco-modernism is the, the point of view there is, is actually one of very active stewardship. So it's uh, eco-modernists are very much about using technology to help us shape the world around us to a, to a preferred condition. Um, you know, we're, we're not, it's not a particularly humble framework in that regard. It's more like, no, we, we do have the ability to impact the whole planet, so we should be very good at it. You know, we must learn to be very good at it. So we've got to have eyes open, hands on, on the steering wheel. And what amazed me about Fire Country is, is uh, how much there's a, uh, a sense there of, yes, and we are part of the land. We are not um, a victim of the land. We're not in conflict with the land. We're actively managing it. We, and we manage it for conditions that uh, we find good and that we see as good for the environment that, that's around us. And I actually thought that that was a really beautiful um, parallel, uh, all the way down to uh, amenity. Um, yeah, uh, an example given of, of, of the author visiting a community that hadn't been able to engage in burn for a long time and the riverbank had become choked and people could no longer easily get to the river and use it for swimming, for recreation, for fishing, for enjoyment. Um, and fire can change those conditions and return that condition to make that a, a nice uh, environment for people. So I think that surprisingly enough, uh, there might be some parallels between something with the word modernism in the title and the world's oldest living continuous cultures. Um, which is which is Aboriginal Australians, and I, I suspect that there might be more in common there than we first appreciated. I think there's there's work to do to bring those worlds together, but I can I can see a lot of similarities. Um, and there's a, a lovely story where um, Victor describes how um, in working with people who have been damaged and hurt by bad fire in Australia and coming to do a fire workshop and a burn workshop, there's a lot of trepidation. Um, but with some uh, ex explanation, some experience, some knowledge and a little bit of exposure and participation, people very quickly are able to, to develop a new relationship with it. That feels exactly like all of the outreach I've done on nuclear power. <laughs> it really feels like the sort of work that I've had to do for a long time. Um, about nuclear technologies. Uh, so I went, yeah, I, I know that experience really, really well. And it is terrific 
to be able to bring people close, which is why, you know, that, that Oclo uh, nuclear reactor that I described that I think will be such a welcoming place for people to come potentially holds, holds a lot of power. Yeah, so it's been having come from a year where um, I had to drive around a fire to, to get somewhere one day. My uncle had to be evacuated from a town. Um, people died in my community. I visited um, conservation areas nearby that have been really destroyed and, and ravaged. Um, to now having a sense that um, even though climate change is going to take quite a long time to correct, we can be a lot more active about managing the risk um, in some really smart ways using knowledge that's that's been here all along we just we just haven't integrated it yet and i find that very hopeful i think that's very hopeful indeed and thanks for opening our eyes to that plus a couple of book recommendations which can never go wrong can it so um i think that is a wonderful full circle back to where we started the problem we started with um i appreciate your time today ben as always and we just Love listening to you. Um, thanks very much for sharing your, your knowledge in SMRs because we've been having, wanting to do that for a long time. Um, thank you for your work as well out there. You know, you are giving that is, back that to is my community and society as well as your day job. So we, we appreciate that. It's my pleasure. I hope the viewers and listeners are really enjoying it. We're at brightnewworld.org. Uh, look us up, see uh, the work that we're doing, um, get in touch. Uh, you can see us on Facebook and on Twitter. A little bit of encouragement and participation in the conversation is is really welcome. Um, but thanks very much for having me, Matthew. Cheers, Ben. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.